Nope. I'm sorry. I want to apologize to Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, who requested this movie. I just can't review it. It's impossible to do it without swearing, and I just won't do that in a superhero rewind. I know I said I'd review every superhero movie ever made, but this is the line. I It just can't be done, alright? Hey, don't look at me like that. I have standards. I have integrity. I have consistency. I just can't do it, goddammit! Alright? Ah, shit. Crap. Now that I've started, I can't stop. Fuck. Well, so much for integrity and that shit. Guess I'm reviewing fucking kick-ass. The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Kick-Ass 2 does not, pardon my French, kick-ass. It's kind of like Amazing Spider-Man 2 is not amazing. It's got its moments. It's got a couple of decent performances, and of course, the biggest standout is Jim Carrey as Sergeant Stars and Stripes. There are a few jokes and gags I laughed at, and there are places where Chloe Grace Moretz is as endearing and likable as she is in the first movie. But it really feels like when Matthew Vaughn left, he took most of the energy, charm, and style with him. Everything pales in comparison. The directing and cinematography is the most noticeable downturn, but the dialogue overall isn't as sharp or clever, much of the plotting is lazy and contrived, and the weaker story and direction seems to be affecting the acting. Nobody's awful, but the returning cast all seem less enthusiastic about the material, and it hurts their performances. I question some of Moretz and Aaron Taylor Johnson's line deliveries this time, which I never did in the first movie. It feels like a hobbled-together story that sometimes cheats to get to the next plot point, made out of some perfectly interesting ideas and logical steps forward, most of which, I'm sure, come from the source material. I know about a few of them, but honestly, and don't sick your crotch-biting dog on me for not doing my homework, but I don't like what I've read of the first Kick-Ass, and I just don't care to read anymore. I did give the Hit Girl many a try, because she's the character I'm most intrigued and entertained by, and the first issue was okay, but I was still turned off enough to the tone and spirit of the material to continue on. So I don't want to give the movie too much credit for ideas and new characters I like, because I doubt if very many of them are new to this material, and a lot of them aren't excellent executed especially well. I can credit writer-director Jeff Wadlow for using those ideas, certainly, but I'm just not impressed with his effort. If it's true that Matthew Vaughn handpicked him for this project, we may have Vaughn to blame to some degree. What the f*** Vaughn? He left to make Kingsman, and I don't fault him for not staying with this franchise, but pick a more stylish action director with a better track record. This guy directed movies like I'm Through With White Girls, and he went on to do such memorable moneymakers as Nonstop and This Year's Truth or Dare. Wadlow doesn't manage to recreate Vaughn's style in Panache, and he doesn't replace it with a unique style of his own. The elaborate secret headquarters sets, which are both highly detailed and wonderful, help to make the movie feel like a big production, because Wadlow is directing it like a made-for-TV sequel. But with the same cast, Wadlow's characters often feel unintentionally melodramatic, cartoony, or sappy. They don't often feel like real people, which is a problem, especially when your premise is superheroes in a real world without superpowers. It doesn't feel like an obligatory sequel in premise. 
Kick-Ass opens the floodgates to other wannabe superheroes. Hit-Girl has to figure out who she is without Big Daddy, and Chris, Red Mist, wants to be a supervillain, now that Kick-Ass has killed his dad and given him a bad guy origin story. The first movie stands just fine on its own. It doesn't need sequels, but it certainly feels at the end of that film like there might be more story to tell. That was a superhero origin story, but one that's supposed to be in a world more like the one we live in. So how that story continues is potentially just as different and interesting from a more heightened comic book world as the origin was. It only feels obligatory when we really get into it. The novelty and concept have already worn off, but the movie watches a little desperate, trying to fall back on the same envelopes the first movie was pushing. As gimmicks, instead of telling a complex story about how this world is changed by Kick-Ass's success against the city's crime boss in the first movie, but with the same vulgar and violent backdrop. This is just coasting on the vulgarity. Good ideas are turned into a flimsy excuse for bloody fights, foul-mouthed dialogue, and gross-out humor, instead of using those things as trappings of a tight-knit, character-driven story. This feels like a comic book in all the wrong ways, which ruins the whole conceit of a real world with superheroes, that's still somewhat heightened the way action movies always are. I talked about this when I reviewed the original. It's not actually the world we live in, and there is movie logic and physics cheats, but there's an internal logic. That version of the real world does have jetpacks, but it doesn't have superpowers. This movie doesn't suddenly go to the nines with impossible physics or anything, but its characters aren't believable in how they respond to things, and that's what rang true in the first Kick-Ass. It's not just about physical limitations and how badly you'd get beaten up if you tried to fight crime in a costume. It's about how people would really react, the general public your friends, and your enemies. Most of the time, people just do whatever the script wants them to in this movie. Like a general plot thread was outlined, and then each character was squeezed into the roles required by that outline. Like trying to put triangles in square pegs. The occasion for story in Kick-Ass 2 is the result of the events of last movie, but for no reason at all. They're not affecting the world until three f***ing years after all that happened. Chris D'Amico is just now developing a supervillain costume and persona after a contrived scene where he accidentally kills his own mother. Even though Kick-Ass killing his father seemed to be all the motivation he needed when he quoted the Joker from Batman 89 at the end of that film, Wait till they get a load of me which is one of the best moments in the movie. And side note, this one never has cool superhero or comic book references like that one, which I miss. Just a lot of, this is like Batman. I don't want to be Robin. You know, that kind of shit. I'd have expected Chris just is the mother already, but no, it's a forced origin to mirror kick-asses and give Chris some screen time, as if the movie is afraid that if he's already a villain, he won't have anything to do before the big showdown in the third act. At exactly the same time as Chris repeatedly kicks his mother's tanning bed until it crushes and electrocutes her to death, which admittedly is kind of funny on its own, Dave decides to become kick-ass again, because he's seeing all these new superheroes inspired by him popping up in the news and and on social media and because he's bored with his regular life. Again, three years have passed in which nothing of consequences happened, but coincidentally, both of these characters' stories start up again. Dave starts training with Mindy, which is fun, especially watching her shoot him in the chest wearing a bulletproof vest with no warning at all, but it's weirdly structured. We cold open with that scene, and it feels just like the first movie. This is a kick-ass scene, and it's a scene that, again, pardon the language, does kick-ass. 
But then we backtrack so we can see Dave decide to put the costume on again, train a little, get beaten up horribly in a parallel scene to his first fight in the original, and then foolishly, he decides to keep going. And maybe unbelievably, given how much pain he suffered the first time around, and considering nothing major is at stake yet, I'm not sure I buy that getting the shit beaten out of him all the time is worth that sense of belonging. But I guess he thinks he'll be safer if he can get more superheroes to join him, so he starts teaming up with other cosplaying heroes who don't realize what they're in for yet, like Dr. Gravity. I don't know why he didn't do that in the first place. Why not just open the movie in the middle of all this? We don't need to see the genesis of any of it. Chris is a supervillain called the Motherfucker, and he's planning to get revenge on Kick-Ass for f***ing killing his f***ing dad. Dave gave up Kick-Ass for a while, but it's just in his bones, and he likes the limelight and attention, and he just can't stop, so he's Kick-Ass again. That doesn't fix the three-year problem, of course. There's no reason any of this should take that long to get going, or that it should be happening at the same time. But at the very least, make that the new status quo, rather than forcing it in as separate inciting incidents. Either this takes place immediately after the first movie, like a couple weeks or a few months, or Dave and Chris coming out of retirement have to be linked. One event should trigger the other. And it's not hard to come up with something plausible. Chris doesn't know who Kick-Ass is. Maybe he's waiting for Kick-Ass to start fighting crime again before he comes out of the shadows. Or maybe he's been ramping up crime in the city and he's really high profile. Maybe everyone's heard of the motherfucker and he's constantly goading Kick-Ass to show his face. And Dave resists putting the suit back on until the last possible minute because he doesn't want to be in the position where he might have to kill again. Or because he's in a good relationship with his girlfriend and he doesn't want to jeopardize that. Or he doesn't want to risk his dad being alone after seeing Hit Girl lose her father. It's really not that goddamn hard to get these arch enemies together organically. The three-year thing is hard, because Chloe Grace Moretz can't control her aging. The movie desperately wishes she was still 12 years old, but now she's a fully developed teenager, and that means she can't be the cute little girl Rorschach anymore. So if you're not going to recast, and yes, that sounds like a suicidal move, considering how much of the popularity of the first movie can be credited to Moretz, you're stuck telling a story that happens later than the one the Kick-Ass 2 comic told, so you have to get creative. What you can't do is have your cake and eat it too with this shit. It seems like the only thing that's really happened in three years is that Mindy has become a teenager. Besides that inevitable plot point, the sequel ignores how much time must have passed and pretends like it's still happening right after the first one. And it makes no sense. So Mindy has continued being Hit Girl, but the movie pretends like she's just started going to school. Or is pretending to. She cuts class, is never there, because she wants to keep being her father's daughter, and she doesn't know how to be a regular teenager. Which is a fine arc if you're stuck with a teenage hit girl. That's not what I want at all, but unless you made these movies simultaneously, something a studio would have never bankrolled because it was a weird, risky project anyway, still six years before Deadpool and the year after Watchmen underperformed for Warner Brothers, that's the most logical story to tell. It's a coming-of-age tale turned on its head. Teenagers don't know who they are, they struggle to find themselves, and they go through embarrassing social trials which make them stronger as they develop their own unique identities. But Mindy had to grow up fast and already knows who she is, so when she goes through the same typical high school obnoxiousness, she says, wait a minute, I don't need this, I've already found myself. 
On paper, that's a fine arc. I'll get into the details of how it's executed a little later. But the problem with how it's presented is that it pretends like three years haven't passed and just hopes we won't notice. Nobody noticed Mindy wasn't going to school for three f***ing years? Her guardian, her dad's cop buddy Marcus, isn't smart enough to realize what she's doing until she's 15. He just seems smarter than that. She finally makes a mistake here, because this is where we're telling the story, and he pulls off her bed covers, revealing her hit girl suit, just to manufacture drama and put her in a position to make him a promise that she won't fight crime anymore. The way she manages to ditch school is already insultingly stupid, and it's the first sign that something is way off with this movie. Mindy hacks into the high school's computer system and gives herself perfect attendance. She isn't found out until they give out the perfect attendance award and she's not there. That's a punchline, not an explanation. If she didn't show up to class, the teachers would notice. Some of the students would notice too, even if nobody likes her and she's largely ignored. Marcus would be called. It's not like the secretary would look at the computer and be like, no, you must be mistaken. My records show she's here, so let's not bother to confirm it. She must be in class, even if you don't see her, because it says here she has perfect attendance. I'm shocked by how insanely lazy that is. And again, it totally takes me out of this reality. It's supposed to be a world that's more believable and harder to be a superhero in, but we get a Nickelodeon cartoon explanation for how Mindy is cutting class, and how has she done it the last three years? What happened when she didn't show up to get the perfect attendance trophy in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade? Oh, that's right. No time has passed between movies, but she's somehow 15 already. The timeline and internal logic are broken in the first five minutes of the movie. The sloppiest plotting is always related to Chris, the mother who, in almost every scene he's in, does something because the story needs to advance. Because that's the moment the script decides that should happen, not because of choices he's making based on that's happening. At the beginning, he has a conversation with his mother you'd think he would have had already sometime in the last three years, and it's fraught with forced exposition to get the audience up to speed, with lines like, you threw away my red mist costume. Then, he accidentally kills her, and that's supposed to get him in a bad enough place where he declares himself a villain, even though, again, he was clearly already at that point at the end of last movie. Each stage of his villainous plan is arrived to arbitrarily, just because we're checking in with him again. It's almost never based on anything. He decides to go kill the leader of Justice Forever. The group Kick-Ass is joined because his uncle Ralph, operating from prison but still in control of a lot of organized crime, has Chris's right-hand man and the closest thing he has to a friend killed with a knife to the throat. Yavier, played by John Leguizamo, in a somewhat wasted role. Although he's pretty funny when he tries to get Chris to tone down the racist stereotypes in his team member names, and when he tries to draw the line at having a character named Mother Russia on the same team as Mother that made me laugh. I like the idea of Chris using personal horror and tragedy to harden himself, losing his childhood innocence intentionally so he can be an effective supervillain, like he's aware that he's still naive and living in a comic book. But he killed his own mother. Yeah, it was an accident, but he clearly, deep down, wanted her dead, and wanted more motivation to do horrible things. So I don't buy that he needs to see his friend murdered to get up the gumption to try to kill Colonel Stars and Stripes. That's just the next thing that's supposed to happen in the story, so the movie presents it like character progression, without any connective tissue between those scenes. 
How did Chris know where the Justice Forever headquarters was, anyway? Did I miss something? He seems to know Colonel Stars and Stripes' identity somehow, and he knows he's ex-mafia and used to work for Chris's father, but how does he get from that to here's where the lair is? It seems like there's a scene missing. And to mask it, the movie acts like, because Chris has now chosen to kill this guy, he also knows where to find him. How long has he known where the headquarters is? Why not send some guys with the element of surprise to kill him? Oh, it had to be him for no reason. And he needed more motivation to do horrible things, even though Colonel Stars and Stripes had nothing to do with the death of his friend, which is what motivated him. And later, after Chris's new team, the toxic mega slaughter a bunch of cops, the mother suddenly decides it's time to amass an army. Just right there on the street. Hasn't brought this up to his team before at all. He's either been keeping it under his hat the whole time, or he just now thought of it. You know what would be nice, team? A giant mother army. And it's set in a back-off shot while they're walking away, like the filmmakers realized in the editing room, oh no, we forgot to have a scene, setting up the army. So they just ADR Chris awkwardly saying, okay, I want an army now, guys, let's do that. It's fine if it's played like he's just making it all up as he goes along, flying by the seat of his pants, but it seems more like the movie just doesn't know how to get from point A to B. Christopher Mintz Plass still has some fun moments of naivety and fanboyness, but the character is totally degenerated to a Spider-Man 3 Harry Osborn place, and he's no longer interesting at all. There are lots of missed opportunities with him. He and Hit Girl have both lost their role models, the people they most wanted to be like, and they're struggling to move forward without them. Of course, Chris's dad didn't think much of him and didn't have much use for his son until he could use him to get the kick-ass, while Mindy's father was a real mentor and had true affection for his child, but they're both lost without their fathers. Mindy falls back on her training with her father, trying to continue his legacy, and Chris didn't really learn anything from his dad except intimidation and the power of money and guns, so he falls back on his fandom and his family's power, trying to create a world of supervillains in the way Kick-Ass brought superheroes into the real world. There's a more interesting comparison and contrast between Chris and Mindy, I think, than with Chris and Dave, and I wish the movie had picked up on that and done something with it. Minnie and Chris could have used a scene or two together. Instead, Mindy has to get paired up with the other kicking chick, Mother Russia, of course, just so the females are fighting. And not because there's anything interesting to say about those two characters. Um, they're both really disciplined, really ruthless, and were both probably raised from birth to be killing machines, I guess. And one's a lot bigger than the other one. But not even those things are talked about. We just need someone to fight Hit Girl who can actually hurt her. So we have an excuse to pay off the last resort device, a vial of adrenaline. So I'll use this opportunity to talk about this briefly. We set up the last resort device early on. It's obviously going to be used in a seemingly no-win scenario right at the end. It's weird that Big Daddy didn't have it last movie when he was about to die, and it's not a satisfying reveal because everything about it is so predictable. This is not a good setup and payoff. It's obvious how it will be used, and it's obvious what it's going to be. What else is that vile, the way Mindy describes it, in a world that doesn't have super science and genetic engineering except adrenaline? And we don't do much with Chris and Dave either, even though they're supposed to be arch nemeses. Chris's whole motivation is revenge on Kickass, and he acts almost like he's hardly ever spoken to the man, like he's just going through the motions. I hate you because you killed my dad and I'm a supervillain and this is what I'm supposed to do, you asshole. And I like some of that going down a checklist stuff. He has a plan to destroy the city, because what supervillain worth his salt doesn't have that? But it's like Wadlow watched the first kick-ass one time, 
Maybe back when it was in the theater? Maybe he fell asleep a couple times during it? It doesn't play like the friend's turn to harden enemy story you'd expect, which is one of the big tropes I thought the movie would explore. If you watched this without the first one, you'd never know Kick-Ass and Red Mist were partners and fought crime together. Sure, Red Mist was doing it to impress his father, always pretending to be a superhero, and deceiving Dave. It was always a setup. But he came to like Kick-Ass, and he didn't want his father to kill him. This movie remembers that killing doesn't come naturally to him, though it doesn't build to his trying his hand at murder gradually the way it thinks it does, but it doesn't remember how he used to feel about Kick-Ass, his idol. Yeah, Dave killed his dad, but there's no nuance and hardly any recognition when they finally throw down, from either of them. Chris acts earlier in the movie like he's only glimpsed Kick-Ass, not spent any time with him, when Dave's father turns himself into the police as Kick-Ass to protect his son. Chris says, I've seen Kick-Ass. He's like my age. No, you've ridden around with him and talked with him and confided in him. This might seem like a minor point, but it's not how a guy with a complex relationship with another human being responds to that situation. And another side note, this is one of the best examples of people not acting like real people in general in this movie for the sake of a plot point. Dave's dad pretends to be kick-ass to keep his son from getting arrested when the police go on the rampage arresting anyone in a mask no matter their past because of the mother team's crimes. It doesn't work at all. Kick-Ass is in viral videos. He walks around the streets of the city wearing his costume, high-fiving people. Anyone who has ever come in contact with him knows he's a teenager. There's no question if you see him in the suit for any amount of time. It's bullshit to think anyone buys that. Chris seems to have a moment of lucidity right before his death that I find perplexing. He's astonished that Dave won't let him fall to his death as they dangle over a shark pit from a ceiling in the familiar hero nobly tries to save the bad guy scene. He's imagining himself still as the comic book villain that keeps coming back no matter what. Dave says this isn't a comic book. This is real life. You don't get a sequel. And when he falls in the water and is surprised to still be alive, Chris apologizes to Kick-Ass. I'm really not sure what the movie is getting at with this. If it's supposed to be a moment of clarity, where he suddenly snapped out of his comic book fantasy delusion and realized the magnitude of everything he's done, it's not clear in the performance or the way it's shot. I'd have slowed down that scene a bit, just before he's eaten by the shark, where we're with Chris's perspective just long enough to appreciate that what we saw before was bona fide insanity, and that he's meant to ultimately be a tragic character. After all, we haven't seen a more sane Chris since last movie. And then there are the returning characters who are completely out of character, again, just for story purposes. The worst is Katie, Dave's girlfriend, who was a pretty understanding and likable love interest last movie. And here, she's made completely shallow, and she's a terrible person. For the three minutes she's on screen, just so Dave isn't dating anyone when he starts banging night who is way less of a than Katie. The movie really wants him to do that so there's, I guess, sex in superhero costumes? It's not a romance so much as a friendship with benefits. They both like the novelty of getting physical with another superhero. There's a nice scene with them in a hospital toward the end when Night 
bitch, Miranda, gets hurt and starts to appreciate the reality and brutality of fighting real crime when they see each other as real people. But does Katie have to be totally thrown under the bus for this minor character thread? I mean, she's thrown under the bus, and then the bus runs her over, backs up, and rolls over her again. I'm gonna count that as a retcon. She wasn't like this last movie. She was really mature about Dave being a superhero. She understood why it was something he thought he needed to do, especially at the end, when he wanted to save his friends, and she appreciated his bravery and selflessness. Here, she's either been sleeping around on him and likes another guy better just because he has a bigger dick, or she pretends like she's been doing that to make Dave jealous, and all because she overhears Mindy in the hallway say it's over, and she jumps to conclusions, assuming they must have been dating. And isn't that disgusting, because he's 18 and she's 15. Okay, after everything she and Dave have been through together, she's not going to give him a chance to explain himself, and considering she knows his secret identity, it would be pretty easy, as long as Mindy was okay with him divulging her identity. And now that Mindy is seriously planning never to don the costume again, he might be able to persuade her to that. Especially since, shortly after she stops being Hit Girl, Mindy uses her training in her everyday life more and more, and isn't so concerned about anyone knowing what she can do. So it wouldn't be that hard to get Katie to realize, oh no, this is Hit Girl, this is that girl that he helped save the day with last movie. It's weird that Dave doesn't go after her and try to make her understand what's really going on. They were pretty serious last movie, and seemed like she was supposed to be the love of his life. But then, if I had a girlfriend who suddenly refused to give me the benefit of the doubt, and was probably sleeping with another guy, maybe I wouldn't be in a hurry to pursue her either. He ought to at least talk to her about his secret identity. If she's acting like that, how does he know she'll keep it? She's one of the only people who knows, and he's trying to be kick-ass again. She's a major liability, but it never even comes up. It just doesn't occur to him that she could let the whole world know he's kick-ass. His father would find out, his enemies would know, and it would completely ruin his life. Like it does ruin his father's later when the motherfucker sends thugs to kill him in jail in order to draw Dave out. How is he not remotely concerned about this? I hate it when a sequel finds a clumsy excuse to write a love interest out. We spend the whole first movie invested in a relationship, and because the actress isn't available, or we're out of ideas and we want to tell the same story again, we write her out off screen. But this is worse. It's not even a recast, it's the same actress, who I liked in the first movie, who I'm led to believe will be part of the major supporting cast again, and turns out to be playing a completely different and terrible character, and then doesn't show up again after the first 15 minutes. She's at least as selfish and cruel as the stereotypically mean cheerleaders Mindy falls in with, and it makes the movie look, I don't want to say outright sexist, but bad at female characters. And then there's Todd, who is recast, but is also a completely different character. He was played by Evan Peters last time, whose career has taken off, and who's playing Quicksilver next year in X-Men Days of Future Past. He's the third wheel of Dave and Marty's nerdy friend group, the kids that hang out in the comic shop last movie. In this one, Marty is already part of the Justice Forever team when Dave gets there, calling himself Battle Guy. This is one of the funnier scenes in the movie, where everyone there has a tragic backstory and he just uses Batman's so he'll be accepted. Though it is odd that Dave just reveals his identity to everyone in the room when he tells Marty he's full of shit and that his parents weren't murdered coming out of an opera. 
I thought he might take Marty aside or talk to him after the meeting. Be like, hey, look, now that you're being a superhero, I'll let you in on a secret. I'm kick-ass. But don't tell any of these weirdos. I don't know if I can trust them or if any of them is remotely competent. Why doesn't Dave care about protecting his identity in this movie at all? Shouldn't he be a little more streetwise after last movie and after training with Hit Girl? He's like DCEU Batman. So Marty and Dave start ignoring Todd because he's not one of the cool kids in a costume. Eventually, Dave tells him he's kick-ass off-screen, and Todd tries to fit in by making his own costume. But because he's an idiot, it's an inverted kick-ass uniform, and he wants to call himself ass kicker which would be funnier if he wasn't so unbelievably, impossibly stupid. Because his ideas are derivative, and he really is a total loser, he continues to feel ostracized, so he joins mother army, but not to get back at Dave or anything, just to feel some belonging with some other geeks cosplaying. It takes him way too long to realize what's really going on. He tells Chris that the guy who got arrested as Kick-Ass is Kick-Ass's dad. Again, not to deliberately hurt Dave, which would be a typical high school revenge kind of plot, but way better than this, he gives Kick-Ass's secret identity to a sociopath who's clearly surrounded himself with dangerous people who may or may not have a living man-eating shark and who keeps giving speeches about murdering Kick-Ass just because it's relevant to the conversation. Is anyone that completely dense? Is he supposed to have a mental disorder that's never talked about? And then he redeems himself by using Big Daddy's six stick. Oh, the six stick. The most horrendous thing anyone has ever put in a movie to make a villain throw up and take him out before he hurts Marty. Marty drops it and Todd picks it up, but there's no way he knows what it does. Could be a walkie-talkie for all he knows. Why does Todd assume it's a weapon? And come to think of it, why does Hit Girl give Marty that in the first place? I guess just so this scene can happen. But apparently Todd is fast on his feet, points it at the bad guy, and vomit is induced. I do not buy for a second that this absolute dumbass does that. That should have been a superhero name. Dumbass. Speaking of the six stick, and I've been putting this off, but I guess I have to talk about Mindy's getting in touch with her feminine side arc. Like I said earlier, I like the reversal here, that Mindy tries a normal life, and it's not for her, suggesting that not everyone experiences their teenage years the same way, and suggesting that nurture can totally beat out nature. The problem is, before that message is spelled out at the end, the movie is totally saying that deep down, girls are all the same. Because of hormones, they all respond to the same sexual stimuli exactly the same way. And if they don't seem to, they're just pretending. They're in denial. Mindy goes to a cheerleader slumber party because she's promised Marcus she'll stop being Hit Girl, who told her father he'd keep her safe, and he wants her to try to have a regular high school experience. And I guess he thinks that means embracing major stereotypes. She's supposed to do girly things, like go to a slumber party and be a cheerleader and get manicures and gawk at half-naked boys in boy band videos. She resists all of this at first, because it seems stupid and pointless, but is surprised to find that the teenage heartthrobs that turn the other girls on have exactly the same uncontrollable effect on her. Again, I don't know if it's outright sexist, but it's pretty short-sighted. Different girls find different kinds of people attractive. As a heterosexual man, I know that what I find attractive in girls isn't the same as in other heterosexual men necessarily, and I don't always understand some of the things that other guys go gaga over. And while people's hormones rage most in their teenage years right after puberty, 
it's not like they don't also have personal tastes at that time. The idea that Mindy is suddenly realizing she is interested in boys and does have a sex drive for the first time and a little late is fine and could even be funny. But I wonder whether girls find this insulting. This is a movie all about inclusiveness, characters who want to feel like they belong. Dave wants to be a part of the super team he inspired. Mindy doesn't belong anywhere now that her father is gone, so when she's forced to stop being a loner, she wants to feel included with the cheerleaders. Or she thinks she does, once she discovers she's maybe not as different from them as she thought. She does everything she thinks she needs to, including trying out for cheerleading. Unbeknownst to her, the head cheerleader, Brooke, is just using her trying to turn her into herself, and doesn't actually care about her at all. Or I guess she's the girl who has been the cheerleading captain in years past. They're trying out for spots, like the year just began, except Mindy was supposed to get a perfect attendance award earlier. I have no idea when in the school year it's supposed to be, and I don't think the movie knows either. Brooke tells Mindy she's guaranteed at least an alternate spot if she doesn't fall on her face. Mindy impresses the other girls more than Brooke because instead of an inappropriately sexy dance, like Brooke's, she just imagines she's fighting four ninjas and gives a martial arts demonstration. It's a cool sequence, intercutting between the ninja fight in her mind and what she's really doing on the gym floor, though I'd think a bunch of kicking and punching would be seen as the wrong kind of demonstration and she'd be disqualified. Now that she's a threat to Brooke, she predictably decides to sabotage Mindy, getting to the boy she goes out on a date with and convincing him to drive her out to the woods in the middle of nowhere, where Brooke and her posse are waiting, and then leave her there while they all drive off. I thought she'd get an elaborate hazing of some kind, and I was kind of relieved when that's all it was, just so I wouldn't have to sit through something gross. I guess that was intended to create a false sense of security, because the way Mindy gets back at them in the cafeteria is one of the most uncomfortable 45 seconds of grossness I've ever had the misfortune of sitting through in a theater, and the main reason I've never gone back to this movie until now. I do like that Mindy uses her hit girl skills to deal with this, embracing that persona from now on. She decides to be herself, rather than pretending to be something she's not. But it's disgusting for disgusting's sake, trying desperately to shock an already desensitized audience. That's where the sick stick comes in. It's a device Big Daddy had that sends a signal at whoever it's pointed at that causes spontaneous vomiting and diarrhea. I mean, yeah, the movie successfully made me hate these girls, but I can't be made to hate any character enough to want to see that happen to them. Because I don't hate myself that much. After that, she becomes Hit Girl again to save Dave, who is kidnapped at his father's funeral and taken to the mother lair to be killed. She and Justice Forever bring their own army. There's a big fight where everybody pairs off, and after the day is saved, she decides to leave the city and keep being Hit Girl somewhere else. Mindy tells Marcus before that that he was right about Big Daddy stealing her childhood, but that maybe that's not a bad thing. She says in the first of many lofty speeches that don't sound like something she'd say at all, that her dad gave her a gift, and that she doesn't need to spend four years figuring out who she is. It seems like the right arc for her, but I don't like that the movie treats it like a lesson to be learned, like she's maybe an example for the rest of us to follow. That's not to say that nobody should relate to this on some level, but it should be more thoughtful about it. 
You really need a Matthew Vaughn to pull this kind of thing off. Hit Girl is now a 15-year-old mass murderer who has decided she can't live a normal life because she likes being a mass murderer, never mind that she only kills bad people, at least when she can help it. It plays like a nice moral for teenagers here. No one can tell you who you are, you don't have to be what society tells you to be, and people don't fit in the easy boxes high school tries to force us into. You can't do that with Hit Girl. She's a unique fictional character who does not exist in the real world, as realistic as this movie movie wants to dupe us into thinking it is. She's the last character who should get these big, wise speeches about being yourself, where it comes off like the movie justifying her more than questionable actions and upbringing. It should play a little more tragic, not endearing. This is a girl who can't have a normal life. She was raised wrong, and maybe even give her every opportunity to be a normal girl. Not an airheaded freak who hates everyone and uses people, but a girl who wants an education and a job and maybe a family someday. This movie makes high school such a horror show. Her old life feels less disturbing by comparison. Of course she goes back to being hit girl. She never sees the upside to normal, and wouldn't it be more interesting and more compelling if she did, and still chose to leave at the end? So Hit Girl and Kick-Ass have parallel character arcs, where each realizes he or she feels more like themselves when they're beating up bad guys, and that there isn't a place in the real world for them. The movie is about how superheroes in the real world aren't sustainable, because they cause more problems than they solve, and almost everyone who does it has to stop because it becomes too real, too dangerous. Dave recognizes that he's spending the whole movie cleaning up his own mess, because he created the mother and he inspired all the superheroes who get hurt by him or arrested by the police. And I like that that plays with a major trope of superhero movies in a fairly realistic way. But while he pretends like he's giving up his mask like the rest of his teammates at the end, who just wanted to do community service, not get drawn into a gang war, he secretly trains in Big Daddy's old headquarters, planning to continue. When it looks like he's really quitting, it makes sense that Hit Girl is leaving town. But why doesn't he tell her his plan? especially since he's using her place. I mean, does he even have permission to be there, or does he break in? That ending doesn't feel thought out to me. Like, Dave training is just tacked on for a cool surprise final shot. But consider what these two protagonists have decided about themselves. They're special. They both have superpowers of a sort. Dave has those damaged nerve endings that make it hard to feel pain, though you wouldn't know it in this movie, and Hit Girl can, as she says, kill a man with his own finger. They both want to belong somewhere, but there's no place for them. They need a comic book world, but that doesn't exist. So wouldn't the logical conclusion be that they stay together? Aren't they a natural match? Whether it's romantic or not. But instead, they go their separate ways, because Dave just doesn't tell her. As far as I can tell, just because she goes on her own in the comics, and maybe the producers want to leave themselves open for a spinoff or a sequel. It just strikes me as odd that you have two characters who discover they're the only people like each other in the world, and the end is, eh, they just go it alone. I do like Mindy's first kiss with Dave, though. I like that there's nothing sexual about it, and even though kids in the school freak out when they think it is that kind of relationship, we never actually go there. She's just decided she's not going to have a regular high school experience, and she never had her first kiss, so she wants it to be with someone who cares about her, or is so much like her. If you're wondering why I haven't talked at all about Jim Carrey, even though his performance is the standout in the movie, it's because there's just not much to say about his character in the story. Colonel Stars and Stripes is an ex-mafia, ultra-conservative military type who puts a superhero team together. His setup is fun and intriguing. He legitimately helps people. He doesn't just beat up bad guys. 
His team does a lot of community service, like working at soup kitchens, which is a good angle. That's what most costume superheroes in the real world actually do. He only likes violence when he's doing it to bad guys who deserve it, particularly perverts and pedophiles, and the movie thinks it's hilarious when his dog bites people's crotches. I will say, Jim Carrey being entertained by that is kind of funny. He doesn't like profanity, and even though he used to be a really bad guy, and that's given him a skewed, somewhat twisted view of right and wrong, he's genuinely trying to make the world a better place. I'm not sure what kind of person he really is until he pulls a gun on a thug and it turns out he never carries a loaded one. He doesn't kill at all, though he does f*** people up. He's weirdly sympathetic and likable, a lot like Big Daddy was. And then he's taken out of the movie, Hollis Mason style, just before it has a chance to do anything interesting with him, which is a mistake. I'd love to see how he would handle the big battle at the end, and what kind of mentor he might have been to Kick-Ass, as he realizes this is all his fault, and considers quitting. I wonder if the ending might have come together more naturally if he was allowed to survive. I'm sure he dies in the comics, again, haven't read that, but looking at the movie it's its own piece, I think it's missing a vital component when it loses Stars and Stripes. I know Jim Carrey himself disavowed this movie almost immediately after making it, deciding he can't condone how violent it is. But if he had any reservations about the material while he was making the movie, it doesn't show. He's totally committed, and he completely disappears in the role, with a voice that's almost unrecognizable. It makes me wish he did more voiceover work and more supporting work. Kick-Ass 2 is not unwatchable, but it's full of missed potential, and it pales in comparison to its predecessor. The franchise is getting a reboot, and while I don't really need that, it's probably for the best that another movie wasn't made in this continuity, at least about Kick-Ass himself. Given where he's left at the end of this, it's hard to imagine that another movie wouldn't just feel like more of the same. A Hit-Girl solo movie could have worked, but at that point, it's just vigilante young woman with the unusual background that she's been doing this since before puberty. The deck was somewhat stacked against this movie, losing the dynamic that made Hit-Girl so unique in the first one, but that doesn't excuse all the lazy and uninspired storytelling. I'm giving Kick-Ass 2 a 2 out of 4. Thanks a lot for listening to the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind, and join me again tomorrow for another one. I want to say thanks a lot to all of our patrons, and if you'd like to support Geekvolution and Superhero Rewind, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash geekvolution, and for just $2 a month, you can get access to regular episodes of Superhero Rewind three days early, and you can also watch... Geekvolution After Dark, which is my uncensored talk show with Eric that we put out twice a month. And you can make a request to Superhero Rewind at the $50 tier on Patreon if there's a specific movie that you'd like to see me review there or on Science Fiction Rewind. And also at the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer. And I'd like to say thanks to all of our producers right now, including Dylan Muschiello, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, the Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpie's Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxey, Dimitri J, John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Handford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartaj Govind Singh, Ethan, Guidi, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and tune in tomorrow to find out what the next movie is that I have been gifted to review on the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind.